So uh, this week, I was uh, walking, my, walking to my kid's school in my neighborhood, and I was walking by, or coming up to, I should say, that house. You know that house? That house that everybody sort of has in their neighborhood that's a little bit different maybe, or, or maybe it's just a little bit different than you and the way you would sort of decorate your house or have your house or you know, the people that are maybe in the house. Uh, and so I'm sort of walking up to this house, and I sort of, you know, again, have that vibe that um, our lives are just in different spots, right? Like, it's just, you can just tell. I've seen the people. I've talked to them a little bit, whatever. They're just in different different spot than me, even though, actually, ironically, in this situation, we look very similar <laughs> in a lot of ways um, to each other, this house. Um, and so um, to maybe kind of get this um, a little bit more where you can relate to this story, um, just imagine sort of whatever those bumper stickers might be that they have on their car that you would sort of like, it just rubs you the wrong way. Just imagine that those people have those bumper stickers on your car. Again, whatever that might look like for you. So as I'm sort of walking up to this house, I notice there's some people outside and, and there's some people sort of talking on the front lawn. And also I notice that they have a rather strong dog that they're standing next to and he's not very uh, happy that I'm walking towards them. Thankfully, they address the dog really quickly and, and try to you know, keep him calm. Uh, and then out of nowhere, the unexpected happens. There's something that I definitely was not expecting to happen. I'm handed this invite for a neighborhood Thanksgiving feast the weekend before the election. And I just was not, I was completely surprised by this. I wasn't expecting to be handed anything first off. And I definitely wasn't expecting to be handed something where it was sort of a community gathering event. And it's, it's, it's obvious from this uh, invite that they've really put some thought and some um, detail into planning out and, and some energy and some time and some money also to planning out this event to invite the neighborhood to this, this block party, uh, actually right in front of their house on the street, close off the street, have this gathering. Uh, and then on top of that, so, you know, they did a nice job of preparing it. And I, I like those kind of details where they had prepared and, and thought, you know, could, they, you could tell they put the thought into this. But on top of that, they had a line at the end or towards the end of the invite that really just sort of cut to my heart, uh, specifically because of maybe some of my preconceived judgment <laughs> of these people. Um, but the line said this, basically the, the gist was to leave your politics and controversial topics at home. And then here's what it said. And just enjoy the company of good people. And I was like, oh, wow, like that's a really nice thing to say. And that's a nice thing to do. And you don't see that in our culture right now. It doesn't seem like people understand that that's important. And, and, and to be honest, I don't think that that phrase seems to align with really any political party or political side of the spectrum. It, it just doesn't seem like that would align with any of that. It, it seems that p politicians uh, are appealing to and really encouraging us to do something very different than enjoying the company of somebody who maybe sees the world differently than you do. It seems that in many ways, politicians right now are sort of viewing their constituency, the, the people around the area where they're supposed to represent and, and, and govern, it, it seems like they want to view that group of people differently. Or they want to sort of pit them against each other in some sense, in, in some ways. It, it seems like the last thing that, that that would be the last thing rather, that politicians would want us to sort of do is to, to get together and have, have good just fellowship around a, a meal together, specifically even before an election. So, so more on that in a moment. We're continuing this series, though, called Christians in Politics. Um, obviously, we have the midterm elections in about a week from now, a week and a few days. And um, so we're still sharing this guide for how Christians should relate in this political environment, this, this political cycle. It just seems to get so strange, right? Every time it comes up, it gets pretty strange and weird. And so we're looking at not the guides that maybe you are looking at that you're getting in the mail or you're seeing online or the way that you're sort of figuring out how to vote. That's not what we're looking at. We're looking at how to treat other people and how to have a different uh, approach to that. And so we said that on a foundational level um, that Jesus came to demonstrate something with a different posture, 
a different tone and a different approach for how we should treat people. And so in this series, we're focusing on that idea of our posture, our tone, and our approach for how we should deal with other people. Because let's be honest, all the problems that we've seen in last election cycles and in the last several election cycles, it comes down to a lot of ways Christians not having a posture, a tone, or approach that looks anything like Jesus. On, on, again, both sides of the spectrum, we seem to see that in a lot of different ways. And so in week one, we said that um, the behavior around Christians, unfortunately, again, on both sides has been, we sort of are prioritizing winning at all costs, and we really fear losing, losing power, losing influence, losing our voice. And so beneath all that Jesus rhetoric, it seems that we've sort of elevated the fact that we want to win, we don't want to lose. And we said that Christians should have a different posture, tone, and approach to winning than politicians, and we sort of outlined that a little bit more. Then in week two, uh, we looked at a question that people were asking specifically around Jesus coming and how to be ready for Jesus to come um, into the world. And so we said that Christians have a different call to action than politicians, that we have a different uh, thing that we should be doing in the world maybe. It might look a little bit similar, but it also is sort of uh, coming at a different angle, that what Jesus followers should do might be and, and maybe should be different from what should Republicans do, what should Democrats do, what should independents do. We look at it a different way. And then last week, or uh, sorry, rather, yeah, last week in week three, we said that um, the question was, what motivates you? What motivates you just in general, but also what motivates you politically? And the normal political tactics are sort of motivating around fear, anger, and hatred. And on the surface, we all can I tell those are not Christian things, right? Those are not things that we should be doing as Jesus followers. And yet, all of us can slip into that as sort of our motivating factor for voting for anybody or doing anything in our lives. And so we said that Jesus followers should do something different, that if we're going to follow Jesus, that Christians should have a different motivation than politicians, that we really do have that. We should take our cues from Peter, who his response was to Jesus, but if you say so, that, that should be sort of the foundational motivation for anything that we do, that it's focused on because Jesus said so, that Christians should take their cues from Jesus more than we take our cues from politicians. So back to that invite that I received earlier this week um, for this, this neighborhood Thanksgiving feast, again, right before the weekend before the election um, is going to happen. Uh, again, it said that we should just enjoy the company of good People. And I think this was troubling to me for a few different reasons. Number one, um, I never expected this kind of invite from these neighbors, right? And I say these because, you know, you sort of have a category of people that you just don't know that you're going to get along with. You just don't know that they're, they're sort of your people, you might say, right? So number one, I just didn't expect it from these people. Number two, uh, I was also disturbed because I should have been doing the very thing they were doing. And, and I found out on the invite, they had been doing for six years prior. And I'm like, oh, no, I've been in this church for six years. And I'm like, oh, no, that's like, I should be doing those same kind of things in this community. So I was like, oh, okay. Uh, and then number three, the third thing that really um, sort of got to me, and again, it's sort of tying into our message today, that this kind of idea of having this feast, it sort of goes against what our culture and our political culture seems to be advocating for. It seems to be that we're getting so polarized and we want to stay so polarized. We want to remember what is the gap between us and the other side, and we want to emphasize it and highlight it and point out why they're wrong. And, and that just doesn't seem to be what this, this, this invite that I got was about. And I sort of think, yeah, that's, that's something that maybe we should be more about. Now, let me be very clear. I think politicians have a tough job in a lot of ways because it seems like the system, and the system involves them, obviously, but the system seems to be sort of momentum against coming together and working together a lot of times. And, and maybe politics as an environment sort of lends itself to that. Um, but, but there's just this way in which it seems that politicians are sort of have a momentum against them 
to sort of do that. Now, that being said also, uh, politicians, I think, have an active role in sort of pushing for that as well, and sort of pushing that momentum to say, Let, let's keep people separate, let's keep the divide going, um, because let's be honest, their constituents, they can't accurately represent all of their constituents, right? They have a group of people in their, in their neighborhood, in their group, their, their area that they're supposed to represent. There's gonna be some that are different than them, and there's gonna be some that are for them. In a lot of areas, that, that divide is very close. It's sort of neck and neck. You know, one side is very close to the other. In some areas, it's very different than the other. It's, you know, vast majority of people. Um, and the thing is that they can't make all their constituents happy, right? And so they sort of appeal to the constituents who voted for them, to the people that are going to support them. They sort of manipulate in some ways and get them sort of to do uh, and to support the things that they want to support. And so that's just sort of a natural maybe result of the political system that we're in. But sometimes politicians see their constituents as just sort of pawns to move in a chess game, right? Um, sometimes politicians see people as a way to sort of reach the goal for their political party, right? Sometimes politicians see people as numbers to just count towards victory. It's a way that you get towards the victory that you're hoping to achieve. Now again, some of this sort of just seems baked into some of our political environments in our system a little bit at this point, or, or maybe I should say the current <laughs> environment that we're in. That maybe hasn't always been that way, but it is at least right now. And yet, as Jesus followers, we're called to live something different. I don't think we have to argue that too much, that we're called to have a different posture, tone, and approach again to what that looks like. So while politicians see their constituents as pawns, Christians are supposed to see people as image bearers of God. And that's who we all are, everybody, whether you agree with me or not. Uh, while politicians see people as a way to reach a goal, Christians are supposed to see people as the goal, right? That is what we're supposed to reach. We're supposed to invest in people. And while politicians see people as numbers to count, Christians are supposed to see people as people that God loves. That's sort of our goal behind everything. Now, while politicians might see people this way, unfortunately, if we're honest with ourselves, we might also see people this way at times, right? We might also see people as sort of just uh, pawns in our chess game of life, whatever that might look like. We might have seen them or viewed people as just sort of a means to an end. Uh, we're just trying to reach a goal and they're just a part of the process. And maybe you've viewed people as numbers to count or dollar signs to count or, or whatever sort of metric you've maybe used in your life. But yet when Jesus talked about the kingdom of God, it was very different than that. That Jesus was saying there was a kingdom of God coming, the rule and the reign of God, not just in the world, but also in people's lives individually and, and sort of as groups of people, that God was coming to rule and to reign in the world. And it was supposed to look very different from the world. And it was supposed to be something that was all-inclusive. It was invited for everybody was welcome to come into God's kingdom. And there wasn't sort of these boundaries that we sort of artificially put up. It was relational. And God's kingdom was, was something that Jesus talked about over and over again. And it was, seemed to be for everyone. It seemed to be, you know, that everyone was invited. And God didn't seem to recognize the sort of elevated status that we give to certain people over other people. Or better yet, maybe he did recognize that it was happening. And he said, that's not the way you should live. That's not the way that it should be. It should be different that many cultures and generations throughout history have sort of tried to elevate one group of people or elevate another group of people slightly above another. And, 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 and Jesus would seem to indicate that's not a part of God's kingdom. That's not going to be a part of this new kingdom that he was coming to bring. And Jesus would teach over and over again that God doesn't see people the same way that we see people. That everyone, Jesus would say, everyone, regardless of qualification, should be treated with dignity and respect because, he would say, that's how God treats them. And that's how God views them and sees them. 
which again, in some levels, seems self-evident to us, right? It seems self-evident that well, that's the way it should be, and I would suggest to you part of the reason that we say that is because we have come after Jesus, who, again, modeled the way for that. But that wasn't the way the ancient world, for sure, that was not the way the ancient world saw people and how they viewed people, at least until Jesus came along. Now, if that bothers you at all a little bit, the idea that we would see everybody, your political enemy, <laughs> your political companion, everybody, we should see them with worth and dignity, then what Jesus is going to share with us today, I think will hopefully ruffle some feathers. And it ruffled mine this week again as I was seeing this invite, as I knew what I was going to preach about, and just seeing, ah, there's a little bit of this maybe still in me that I need to be, uh, be aware of. So we're going to look at um, Luke chapter 10, if you want to follow along the Bible app. We're going to read a passage that I think, again, is probably fairly familiar, um, but it's hopefully going to be a reminder to us. Because this, this parable, while it doesn't directly relate to politics, there is incredible political implications if we will apply what Jesus talks about in this parable. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 10. If you want to follow in the Bible app, you're welcome to do that. We'll also have the notes and verses on the screen as well. So Luke is going to document for us an occasion where um, Jesus sort of goes out of his way again to teach and to emphasize that all people have dignity and value and that there's a new way that God sees people. And he's trying to teach the people that how you see each other is important and God sees you very differently than maybe you see other people. So he says this, in, uh, or starts, starts the story with Luke chapter 10, verse 25. He says, one day an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. So the lawyer does have a question, this sort of lawyer, religious expert in law. He has a question, but he's also trying to test Jesus, which is an important point to sort of uh, get at in a little bit. Verse 25, continuing. Uh, one day a religious expert, or an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life. Now, when the first century Jewish people were sort of thinking about or what they were thinking about this question as this guy asked it, um, what they were really asking is, how do I get to participate in God's future kingdom? Like that's sort of the way that they would think about it. How do I get a reserved seat to, to move into this new kingdom? This Messiah is supposed to come and he's supposed to be a king on earth. And so how do I get a reserved seat? How do I get into this new kingdom? What's sort of the entrance ticket into this new kingdom? Now, again, Jesus was obviously very smart. He's the best teacher ever. He, he knew the thoughts and intentions of people people when they ask these questions. And so he, he does what he usually does when somebody asks him a question. He asks them a question back. And so Jesus says, well, of course, you're a lawyer. You're this religious expert, this expert in the law. So, so what does the law say? What does it actually say? Well, Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? And so the lawyer recites back to Jesus what basically everybody in the audience had probably been taught as kids, this sort of the basic understanding of what the most important commandment was, what, what's this way to, to, to get entrance into God's kingdom, to, to inherit eternal life, and, and sort of would, again, point back to the law of Moses, which actually listed this as an important part of the law. And so he says, the man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. Now, the interesting thing is that um, this was a question that was also sort of referenced, or this answer was sort of referenced in a different question a little bit before this. That someone came up to Jesus and said, a little bit of a different version of the question, well, what's the greatest commandment? If I'm going to follow God, what is the greatest, most important commandment? And Jesus would say, well, there's actually not just one. There's actually sort of two sides of the same coin. And so he would reference this, this actual answer that this man gives. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he would add something else onto it after that. And he would take this from Leviticus, which was actually listed in the Old Testament, the law of Moses. They would say, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so apparently um, when this man responds, maybe he was there. 
because we see that his answer to Jesus' question actually includes that idea. He said, the man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength, and all your mind. And he said, love your neighbor as himself. That was what the lawyer said back to Jesus. Well, this is how I get into uh, this new kingdom, this inherit eternal life. This is how I do it. This is what you said. And so basically he repeats back what Jesus said prior. And the thing about Jesus' answer is it's, it's an important point that basically Jesus is connecting these two ideas, that how you love God is demonstrated by how you love others. By the way that you love other people is how you demonstrate that you actually love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And so Jesus hears this answer from this guy. In verse 28, he says, right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. Now, Jesus rarely said this. I don't know if you've read much of Jesus. Jesus did not say you were right because a lot of the time, the people that he was talking to and trying to teach and help them to know how to follow God and to know what God looks like, they did not seem to be getting what Jesus was talking about, right? They, they would be way off base or they would say something strange, which we're going to reference one of those in a little bit, and they just didn't seem to get it. But in this instance, Jesus says, yeah, that's actually the right thing. You are actually right. But... Interestingly, the lawyer is not satisfied. Verse 29, the man wanted to justify his actions. And again, pause for a second. It's so easy to look at other people and say, yeah, they want to justify their actions, or yeah, that's what we would expect from politicians. But maybe we should turn in and look at a mirror a little bit. Don't we want to justify our actions a lot, right? Isn't that us in this story? That's, that's one of the people we could be, we could identify with. We want to justify our actions because maybe we know what we should do, but we don't always do it, right? We want to justify what we're trying to do. And so, continuing on, the man wanted to justify his actions, and so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Which, again, remember that this man does have an important question. He's actually curious, it seems, but he's also trying to test Jesus and trying to sort of trap Jesus maybe a little bit. And so while he knows the answer, he's going to sort of come about it and say, well, is there sort of any exception? Or, or maybe another way to say it is, what's the minimum I need to do to love my neighbor, or who's the minimum audience that we defined as a neighbor? What does that actually look like? And so for many first century Jewish people, the way that they would define neighbor, and really not just Jewish people, but any first century person and any person in centuries before that, the way they would define neighbor was very ethnocentric, right? Who's in your tribe? Who's in your nation? Who's in your city? Who's in your village? Those are the people that you look out for. You don't look out for anybody outside of that. Why would you do that? And so what this man is sort of asking in some ways, is he's even sort of simpling, or trying to look a little bit uh, more simply at that and to say, what's the subset of my Jewish population, my Jewish neighbors that I'm supposed to try to love? And then in sort of, again, Jesus' typical fashion, he would sort of ask a question or he would sort of divert the question to a story also. That was another approach of his. And so he's going to go into a, a different uh, direction. He's going to go into a little bit of a different line of thinking. And he's going to tell this story that all of us have probably heard. And in fact, all of us have referenced at one point or another, I almost guarantee it, you reference this story. And the story is just, it's so, um, it so rubs people the wrong way. The audience in, that Jesus is talking to, this story would have just been like, all of the Republicans are the audience, and he's going to use a Democrat. Or maybe it's all the Democrats in the audience, and he's going to use a Republican as an example. And it just would rub the people so wrong in this day. But he's going to sort of shift the thinking to, who is my neighbor, to what does it actually look like to love my neighbor, what does that actually look like? And then conversely, and sort of along with that, I should say, what does God actually look like? What does God actually act like in this situation? 
So we go from everybody wanting to hear the answer of what the question was, the question that the man asked. He said, so who is my neighbor? Well, verse 30, Jesus replies with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. Now, it might be easy to think, like, Jesus, weren't we just talking about neighbors, and now we're talking about bandits? Like, why did you change the subject? What does this have to do with neighboring? Well, Jesus sort of, again, does that thing that he does. He sort of uses something that maybe seems completely different, and he brings the whole crowd together into the same line of thinking. Um, and so the audience in this, in this, in this uh, story, though, they would have known the context of what Jesus is sort of talking about. This route from Jericho to Jerusalem and, and this, this idea of what, what it looked like to travel in the first century, we have no idea. <laughs> we have absolutely no idea how dangerous it was. Uh, not just dangerous in the sense of uh, rocks and, you know, falling off cliffs and, you know, stumbling and tripping. All those things were legit. But also there was, you know, more danger from other people coming and you just were, you know, you were very vulnerable when you were traveling. And that's just not the way typically it is for us today. And so the audience would have understood this, this journey. It was about a 17-mile journey, and they would have understood that that's a long ways in their, in their culture when you're walking or riding on donkeys or horses. It was just a very different thing than what we might experience. So continuing on the story. Um, these bandits stripped this man, this Jewish man, of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. Now, clothes were valuable, and so that's why they stole them. They could go and use them. It might be like stealing someone's catalytic converter today. I don't know, but it were valuable things, basically. And so they took them from this man, and they basically just left him for dead. And uh, the people in the audience knew what would happen if you left somebody for dead by the side of the road. Um, either at some point in the night, it gets cold, and the man just dies because he's you know, in the elements, or maybe the animals come and get this man and just sort of finish him off. And so the, the audience sort of knows this is a very dangerous position that this man who's been robbed and, and attacked by bandits, this is a very difficult situation that he's in. Now, remember, this is just a parable, and parables are a made-up story. This might have actually happened to someone, but Jesus is referencing sort of a made-up story to prove a point. He says this, by 30, uh, verse 31, by chance, a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. Verse 32, a temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. So there's these two religious Jewish people who come upon a Jewish man who's bruised and beaten and likely going to die, and they do nothing to help him. They see him, and then they go to the other side and don't actually help their Jewish neighbor. Right? These are Jewish people with other Jewish people, and they don't still help this man. And so maybe these religious leaders are sort of coming back from Jerusalem or they're going to Jerusalem. We're not exactly sure which direction they're heading, but they're heading to Jerusalem. Maybe they want to stay ceremonially clean so they can go and do some activity at the temple. Or, or maybe they're coming from the temple and they want to stay ceremonially clean, but they don't want to go and touch this unclean person who's probably bleeding and whatever else, ceremonially unclean. And so they just don't do anything to help him. And, and they knew that the law you know, required them to not hurt anybody, but the law didn't necessarily require them to help someone or to keep someone from dying. And so they sort of find the loophole and they don't go and help this man. And so if we look at Jesus' previous commentary on what does it look like to be a part of the kingdom of God or how do you inherit eternal life, they didn't do what Jesus would say. They, they didn't love God by loving their neighbor. They actually did the opposite. And so they might not have a place in Jesus' kingdom or this, this future kingdom God has, even though they're very religious people, right? 33, verse 33, then a despised 
Samaritan, which obviously this indicates a lot, right? These are loaded terms, despise Samaritan. And, and many of us know, um, even while we might reference a good Samaritan and think highly of that, in this culture, in, in, in Jesus' culture, Samaritans and Jews just did not get along, right? They saw the world quite differently in a lot of ways, and they had a lot of, a lot of tension. Even though they lived in adjacent areas to each other, they just did not get along at all, that Jews considered Samaritans sort of a lesser group of people and less respectable people. And so consequently, the Samaritans considered Jews less respectable, and they had their own sort of retaliation against them because they were looked, upon, looked down upon. And so um, recently, we actually read a story that um, talked about Jesus getting ready to go through Samaria, and he sent some people ahead to sort of get ready the place for them to go through and make sure it was okay. And the Samaritan people looked at Jesus knowing he was going to Jerusalem, and they, they showed this sort of contempt for Jesus and saying, no, you're not welcome here, basically. And when, when Jesus' closest disciples, when they heard that and how they were going to treat Jesus and that he wasn't welcome there, James and John, these people that we think pretty highly of now because we, we know some of their story, they wrote some of the New Testament, they were the ones who said, well, let's just go and destroy that Samaritan village and destroy the people. Can we do that, Jesus? And Jesus must have just been so discouraged, right? He'd been talking about all these things. And, and John would later go and talk about how Jesus was, was God and God was love. And, and yet somehow John is the one who's saying we should go and destroy these people. And Jesus says, no, no, of course, that's not what we're going to do. <laughs> but you can kind of see there was a lot of tension, right? So verse 33 continuing. Then a despised Samaritan came along. Now, we don't know what the audience exactly thought, but we obviously know that there was some tension there, right? They're a despised Samaritan. Um, I don't think it's unreasonable to think that some of the Jews in the audience might have jumped to the conclusion that maybe the Samaritan, maybe this Samaritan that Jesus is going to talk about, maybe he was part of the bandit group. He was part of the group of people that robbed this Jewish man. Uh, maybe some of the Jews in the audience uh, just never would have thought of the Samaritan becoming the hero in the story because that's not the way you view those people. Uh, maybe some of the Jews in the audience sort of started to realize what Jesus typically did in his stories, that someone was eventually the hero and someone eventually represented God in his stories. And they thought, oh no, <laughs> Jesus is going to make the Samaritan the hero in the story. And oh no, how can that happen? And yet it was actually uh, so much worse than that. Because again, Jesus actually does use the Samaritan, not just as a hero, but he uses the Samaritan as an example of God and representing God in the story. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Now, as we're going to see, he, what he felt compassion was not just a feeling. It was not just an emotion. It was not just something that he felt internally. He's going to go and do something as a result of the compassion that he has for this man. But this is a good start because maybe the other religious leaders that walked by this man, they didn't have any compassion on him. They didn't feel anything towards this man because they obviously didn't do anything to help this man. So maybe they didn't have any feeling of compassion. Maybe they did have a feeling of compassion. Either way, what happens next is also incredibly important. Verse 34, going over to him, going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. Now, soothing his wounds and putting oil on him means something significant that we might overlook. That means that the Samaritan touched the Jewish person. This means that sort of pouring oil and taking this Jewish man to an inn means that it cost the Samaritan something, right? It cost him something. It wasn't just an easy thing to do. It cost him something. 
putting a man on your donkey would obviously take some serious work, even if the man is healthy, let alone this man's been beaten up and bruised. And so it probably took a lot of effort and energy for this Samaritan to put this man on his donkey. And then not only that, to put him on his donkey in a place in a time when it's so much faster and quicker and easier to ride your donkey than to walk beside your donkey. And it would slow down your progress. It would slow down your schedule. He would have to adjust his timing to help this man. It was an inconvenience for him in some ways. And it would have been so much quicker to just ride his own donkey and pass by this man. And yet that's not what the Samaritan man does. So continue on, verse 35. The next day, which is an important thing again, because it's one thing for the Samaritan man to help this man one day, but he goes beyond that and is going to help him another day. Like it would have been a great thing, and most of us would have thought the Samaritan was a great person for just helping for one day and helping the initial day, but this Samaritan is going to go beyond that. And what Jesus would talk about, we say this phrase, going the extra mile, which comes from Jesus walking with somebody two miles rather than just one when they ask you for one. Jesus is going to say, this man goes beyond walking a mile or walking more than a mile in his shoes. He does above and beyond what he should do. The next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, these silver coins, they would have done some currency trans, uh, translation or whatever in their mind of, of figuring out what this is. The audience would have realized this is way more than just a couple days. Like, this is a couple weeks' worth of, of, of income to help take care of this man. So he's not just taking care of him initially. He's taking care of him temporarily for, uh, for a season of a couple weeks. And he, this is a significant investment of time and, again, money for this Samaritan man. Now, um, maybe the lawyer, maybe some of Jesus' audience, maybe some of us here today are like, yeah, okay, Jesus, that's like a lot to ask of. Like, why is this man going to do this? Why is he going to help take care of somebody else who he despises, who despises him? Why would he even do this? This is just way too much to ask. You're expecting us to do too much. And what does this have to do with neighbors, right? The original question, who is my neighbor? What does this have to do with all that, right? And the question that Jesus is going to ask at the end of his story is so incredibly powerful. Um, it's so incredibly clarifying. And it's a reminder, again, of how Jesus has shaped cultures all around the world. Because, again, we reference this story. We call people Good Samaritans all the time, right? That's the thing that the news says. Uh, people who have nothing to do with Jesus, they reference Good Samaritans from Jesus, from the story that Jesus talks about. And I think part of the reason is because of this question that Jesus asks at the end that Jesus is going to redefine neighbor for not just that generation, but for every generation that comes after him, for every ethnicity, for every nation that comes after him. He's redefining who a neighbor is, that neighbor would no longer be primarily about what those people that look like you or act like you or think like you. Neighbor would no longer be primarily around ethnicity or proximity. Neighbor would no longer be primarily about are you like me? That Jesus is going to expand neighbor beyond the borders of Israel. <laughs> He's going to expand it beyond this little, this little small country, this nation in the Middle East. He's going to expand it way beyond that. He's going to expand neighbor beyond those that you know, but also those that you don't know. He's going to expand neighbor beyond the boundaries of their own religion. They saw God a little bit differently. And yet God, Jesus would expand this idea of neighbor beyond that. Jesus is going to expand the idea of neighbor beyond those who see the world the same way that you see the world. 
And Jesus does all that through this parable generally, but specifically, again, through this next question he's going to ask that is, again, it's powerful, transforming. Uh, it's just, it's a powerful question. It's also a bit annoying. Let me just be honest with you. It's a little bit annoying because we kind of know the answer and it sort of brings us all to the same answer, even though we don't want to admit to it. And Jesus' audiences, his audience would not want to admit to this together. So it's a little bit rubbing us the wrong way as well. But it sort of confronts our prejudice. It confronts how we view people, the, the, the inhospitability that we might have towards others that look a little bit differently than us and maybe who vote differently than us. He says this in verse 36. Now, which of these three, the priest, the temple assistant, or the Samaritan, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Now, if the lawyer and the audience were sort of paying attention to what Jesus was saying, there's sort of an implication of what this question is going to say. It goes way beyond Jesus's, or the lawyer's original question about who's my neighbor. Um, if, if this is really important, they, if they see this, what, what Jesus is trying to point to is saying that which one of these actually loved God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, and all their strength by how they loved their neighbor. Like, that's a big implication. It's not just loving your neighbor, but that connects to how you love God and how you interpret and how you demonstrate that for God. And interestingly, the lawyer, he can't even identify the Samaritan. He can't even say the Samaritan's name in his response because, again, they're such that, 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 that uh, despicable. They're just despicable people, so I can't actually say that. So the man replied, the one who showed him mercy. <laughs> he can't even say Samaritan. The Samaritan's not the answer. It's the one who showed him mercy. Because I want to remove that. Like that can't, They can't do that. The Republicans can't be that person. The Democrats can't be that kind of person. The Independents can't be that kind of person. Like Those other people can't be that kind of person. So it's just the one who showed mercy, right? And so Jesus looks at the lawyer, I think, and I think he probably looks at his audience, and he probably looks at you, and he probably looks at me, and he says, yeah, yes, now go and do the same. <laughs> go and do the same. The one who showed him mercy is the what you should go and do. That is what you should be like. That is who you should imitate. The one who showed him mercy was the one who actually showed up and did something. He saw a need and he went and met the need, regardless of who the person was. Because again, the, the Samaritans didn't like the Jews either. And the Samaritan was the one who initiated it and helped the Jewish person. So basically, Jesus is saying, if you want to participate in the kingdom of God here on earth, then you need to go and do this. You need to go and live this out in the world. If you want to live your life in sync with what God is, is doing in the world, then this is what it looks like. If you want to live your life making an actual difference in the world, then live like this Samaritan. Be like the Samaritan, which again, to a Jewish audience, would have rubbed them so wrong. It would almost be like, if you're a Republican, Jesus said, yeah, go and be like that Democrat. <laughs> if you're a Democrat, yeah, go and be like that Republican who, who did that thing. And yet for many of us, that just, uh, just rubs us kind of the wrong way. Now, this story sort of hits one way with many of us, sort of generally, if we think about loving people in general. But again, I think specifically, it hits a different way when we think about politics and we think about this political environment that we see around us. And the challenge for us, many of us, is that our political uh, alignment does not always uh, really align with what Jesus wants us to do. And it doesn't necessarily encourage us to go and do this and to love other people this way. It's about choosing sides and sharks versus jets and all those different things. Like it's just about, you know, separating people from each other. That the momentum of our culture is to sort of look down on the other side of the aisle and look down on the other side of the political spectrum. And to some extent, look down on just anybody even on the same side of this political spectrum who maybe sees a little bit differently than you or might be more towards center or might be more to the extreme and just you're supposed to look down on them. 
that they must have like a low IQ or they must have a lack of character and, and whatever you can fill in the blank for the reason that we should look down upon them. However, I'm going to suggest to you that maybe political disagreement is not always fueled by low IQ, but maybe it's fueled by divergent life experience. And we want to, so it's so easy to say, well, yeah, they're just not smart. That's why they're a Republican. Or yeah, they're just, you know, not well educated. That's why they're a Democrat or whatever the, 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 the statement might be that you've heard. But the reality is that's not always the case. Now, there might be times, I'm not going to say that some people need to be more educated than others. I, there's a sense in that, right? But a lot of times, our political differences are simply life experience differences, that we've experienced life from different perspectives, and so we prioritize things differently from each other. Um, this, the second part that I mentioned I think is also true, that political disagreement is usually fueled by divergent life experience, not necessarily lack of character, though it can be, obviously. We know that there's examples of that, right? But to assume that initially, that's sort of seeing someone as a despised Samaritan rather than looking at them as somebody that God actually loves, and we have no idea what they went through. The reason that they have the views that they have might have nothing to do with a lack of character. It actually might be because they have character and they're trying to stand up and give a voice to a group of people that you have no connection to. And so, again, there's different views on a lot of things. I'm not necessarily saying we should just say that all views are right. That's, that's not what I'm saying. But how we view people, again, our posture, our tone, our approach to viewing people should be different. And maybe we shouldn't jump to the say, well, they just have a low IQ. Or, yeah, they just have a lack of character. And so that's why they view uh, people that way. It might be easier to associate someone's political views with just a low IQ or a lack of character. But let's be honest, we don't want someone else to do that to us, right? <laughs> we wouldn't want someone else to assume, well, they just have those political views because they have a low IQ or, or they are lacking character or they, you know, they just don't know the world. They haven't seen the world or they, they haven't seen things the way I see. We wouldn't want anyone to do that to us. No one wants to be stereotyped or generalized, right? No one wants that. And you don't want that either. And, and, and neither do the people that maybe we've done that about. We sort of characterize them or generalize them or stereotype them as a certain thing that, yeah, I know because you're a Democrat, I know that about you. I know this list of things about you. Or, yeah, oh, yeah, you're a Republican, so I know all these things about you as well. We wouldn't want that to be said about us, and so we shouldn't say that about other people as well. That I think an important point that we need to be reminded of, especially in these political seasons, is I don't have to agree with you to love you, right? I don't have to agree with you to love you. That Jesus' story would demonstrate that in such a powerful way to a group of people who were, who were very different in a lot of ways, but yet they also had similarities that they couldn't see along the way as well. That we can disagree politically and love each other unconditionally. And I'll be honest, this is messy, right? Because where do you draw the line? Is there certain things that are just way out of bounds? And yes, of course there's things that are just way out of bounds. Like if you go along with that, I'm going to have a very hard time loving you. But I don't know that Jesus would give us a boundary because Jesus would say God views all people, that he loves them. He might not agree with their, their views either. And he might say, that's not how I view people. But he would still express love unconditionally to people. Now, again, we might push back and say, yeah, but they are wrong. And I know they're wrong. And <laughs> I got all these lists of reasons. And I, I've been thinking about this. I used to think like that even. But now I have this different viewpoint. And I know they're wrong. And the thing is, that's sort of a gut punch for me when I was going through this and preparing. God loved me when I was wrong about him. 
God loves me when I'm still wrong about a lot of things in this world, and my views might change in 10 years from now. Because let's be honest, my views are very different from when I was 15, when I was 25, when I was 30. My views are sometimes even different from last week, and maybe yours are as well. And so even though they might be wrong, whoever they is, we can still love them because God loved us when we were wrong about him, and we were wrong about so many things that we've even changed our own opinion about maybe in the recent future. That God loves us in spite of our own misinformed, experience-based, evolving views. God loves us in spite of all that, and so we should love other people in spite of that as well. Because through Jesus, we're taught that God treats all people as God's constituents. We sort of think about constituents in this political cycle as those people that the politicians are serving, and we sort of, again, see them sort of divided a lot of times. They're, they're only serving the, the constituents who helped elect them or helped get them into office or continue to re-elect re them, and, and that just seems to be the way that we should view people from a, from a political spec perspective. And yet God, and G God through Jesus shows us that, that we should treat all people as God's constituents because they're all loved by him. They're all part of his, his world, his, his, his view of the world. He created them. And so as this political season gets continued to ramp up and keeps getting going and, and comes towards a conclusion, hopefully soon, <laughs> we get into other things and get ready for Thanksgiving and Christmas, let's remember that as Jesus followers, we're called again to have a different posture, tone, and approach than the political cycle might allow for us or might encourage us to do. And specifically, we're, we're called to have a different tone and approach and posture to our neighbors than maybe our political side would have us view that we should try to reach out to people just like my neighbors, unfortunately, not like me, but like my neighbors did, and trying to have this gathering. We can get together with people who may see the world very differently, but to just have a sort of a gathering with good people and have good conversation together. Now, let me say some things that um, I'm going to try purposefully to maybe stir up a little bit in you of what maybe Jesus' audience felt from him, that you should love all people as God's people, whether they're pro-guns, or pro-gun control, whether they're pro-choice or pro-life, whether they're for big business or whether they're looking out for low to middle income people. God calls us to love all people. We don't have to have these artificial divides in our, in our world. Because as controversial as that might sound, again, Jesus' audience was hearing something, Jews and Samaritans, these different groups of people, and Jesus would say to them, now which of these three was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? And the Samaritan was the one that was referenced, that the lawyer could even reference, that it was the one who showed mercy. And Jesus told them, yeah, go and do the same. 